Gary mentioned just before the service began of the appreciation that each of us no doubt feel to be able to come together on this, this afternoon occasion. And certainly as we continue to think about many others whose uh, illnesses and circumstances have not permitted them to assemble, and nonetheless, we're thankful that things are with us as well as they are permitting this this assembly. And I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. And so as we have come together, having sung these songs and offered a, a heartfelt prayer unto the Heavenly Father, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. It is in that chapter that we'll make a few observations about the first section of that particular chapter this evening. And while you're turning to that location, and we make preparation for some of the thoughts that will soon to follow, it's interesting that this chapter is easily one that can be somewhat overlooked. For after all, we're quite familiar with other portions of the book of Genesis. For example, the creation account is here, and we are so quick to turn to the book of Genesis to appreciate information about the six days of creation and the events that even took place in God's resting on the seventh. But not only that, we learn in this book also, of course, about the events in the Garden of Eden and also those circumstances touching the great flood of Noah's day. Needless to say... The last 38 chapters of the book that bring us to reflect somewhat on the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And yet, in the midst of all of that, again, chapter 11 might not be one of our first chapters to which we might turn. And yet, this evening, in the first nine verses of that chapter, could I invite us to think a little bit about a tremendous set of events that took place, and events which, in fact, have impacted in a dramatic way the face of this earth ever since. In fact, beginning in verse number 1, it reads as follows. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth." In the chapters just preceding this one, you and I, as we build up to it, observe that something dramatic was said about the sons of Noah. You might recall that the entirety of the human population on the planet at the time the flood ended was eight. There was Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. And Peter echoed that truth in 1 Peter 3 verse 20. And yet, as chapter number 9 and 10 develops, we quickly learn peoples multiplied, 
individuals, of course, began to settle in certain areas. And chapter number 10 gives us a history of the three sons of, of Noah and where they tended to settle. It's a bit fascinating then to appreciate that as we transition into chapter 11, the first observation that was made was this one. And the whole earth was of one language. Now maybe that's not that surprising. For after all, there was only eight aboard the ark, and they all spoke the same language. And yet as their peoples continued onward, the entirety of the human family was given at that point to the speaking in one language. You can perhaps imagine the unison, the togetherness, the capability that such a togetherness in language would in fact make. This verse highlights that two separate matters are worthy of, of some observation. It says the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Now that's two different ways of referring to the full totality of the fact as they spoke to one another, they were exactly able to understand, to characterize, and to put into practice that which had easily been expressed. But verse 2 then makes this statement. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Turn back, if you would, to chapter 10 and look at the first reference to so-called Shinar. We find it there in verse number 10. May I begin reading in verse number 8. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Now ultimately what's being discussed there are, these are the descendants of Ham, one of those sons of Noah, and we quickly learn that they settled in this Shinar area. Now that word Shinar might not be the most familiar to us, but if you would keep in mind later references point us to, that's just another word for Babylon. That's where later the people of Babylon would ultimately be taken into captivity, the people of God, as we learn in 2 Chronicles 36. And we also appreciate that Babylon thus came to be a rather well-known place from the consideration of biblical history. At least at this point, we notice that in chapter 11, the people had arrived at or traveled to a position wherein they came to this well-recognized plain of Shinar, it says, and they dwelt there. Genesis 11, verse 2. Now, you might want to go ahead and take note that it had been the very statement of God that after the flood, God told Noah's descendants, you, in fact, move about, populate this planet. In fact, notice again in Genesis 9, verse number 7. Now, this was after the flood. And it said, And you be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. An indication that it was the desire of God that they repopulate or at least fill the earth and they were not to remain in a localized position. Well, yet here in chapter 11 of Genesis, the people had arrived at the plain of Shinar. It would seem that this particular location was very agreeable to them. They could find building materials there. They were of one language, and apparently all the necessities of their life were met in this location. And thus we come to verse 3. And they said one to another, Go to, 
Let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. Do you already appreciate then that as the people had arrived at this location, they now decided, we like it here, we are going to stay here. And you may recall that in the days of the flood, which again hadn't been that long previous, there had been a tremendous essence in death. The people here had an idea. They said, let's build us a city, verse number 4, and a tower, verse number 4, whose top may reach to heaven, and let us make us a name here. We want to be noteworthy, and we, in fact, want to develop for ourselves the acclaim that would come with a city and that would come with an exceedingly high tower. Isn't it a bit fascinating that verse number 4 then closes by saying, lest we be scattered upon the face of the earth. They didn't want to be scattered. They preferred this location. And you'll notice that they had a desire for a high tower, it would seem, so that even if another kind of catastrophe came, they would have a place of security, a place of rescue, and a place of provision in this relatively high tower. You may notice that they say, verse number 4, the top of this tower would reach to heaven. Now, you and I know that doesn't mean reach to the throne of God, but it was to be high enough that they, in fact, could find in it a citadel, a place of great strength and fortitude and power. And obviously, as later peoples would come to a place like this, it was to be a noteworthy place of protecting them against any supposed enemies. But as we'll see shortly, it seemingly was for some other purpose as well. For right now, let's transition into verse number 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Isn't it interesting that God, of course, was very aware of what the people were doing? He was mindful of their construction of this city and the, the, the means by which they desired to do so. Rather fascinatingly, it says, verse 6, the Lord said. So the people had earlier made some statements, and now God speaking said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. The God of heaven makes an observation, and aren't we thankful that we have it for our consideration? He says the people is one. They were unified in capacity, unified in purpose. Their desire to construct this tower in this city, to not be scattered, was apparently such a sufficiently strong thing God intervened. Because this verse now says, there is nothing that will be restrained from them. If mankind is capable of this joining their forces and putting their resources together in this capacity, then God knew in His infinite wisdom what would be the case if this was allowed to go unchecked. And so verse number 6 ends by saying, which they have imagined to do. Mankind had this desire to construct this tower, this city, they had determined not to be scattered. They had determined that the tower would be high and sufficiently so. And now verse 7 says, Go to, let us go down, God said. This is one of those other occasions where you and I appreciate the usage of that word us. Remember back in chapter 1, Let us make man in our image. The plural pronoun us identifying the fact 
the multiple members of the Godhead were active. One more time, you may note the word us carries the same significance here. Let us go down. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and there confound their language. You might pause to observe, of course, in God's infinite wisdom, any number of things He might have done in order to stop the human construction of this city and tower. Of all the things He might have done, He chose to confound their language. He chose, you see, to make it so that they were unable to easily understand one another. That verse says, confound their language. That carries the essence of non-understandability. It carries the meaning connected with that very idea. And it finishes by saying that they may not understand one another's speech. As we continue into verse number 8, So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. God accomplished that desire of suppressing their carrying out of the building of that city and tower, but He did it by confounding languages, by the introduction into the human family of this array of differing speeches or languages, if you please. At this point, the thing then for which we know it best is verse 9. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. So this location in the plain of Shinar that you and I noted back in verse number 2, that came to be called Babel. And it says, Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. At this point, we've at least rehearsed briefly the text itself and looked in some detail at the features that were developed in our, in our understanding. What might be some lessons that we might extract from this and things that can certainly be very meaningful and very encouraging to us? First of all, revisit verses 2, 3, and 4. You and I remember again that the people of the ancient era were such that they had made an imaginative effort. We are going to construct a tower and a city to keep us bound together at this location. And God in the aftermath said in verse number 6, there's nothing that will be restrained from them. This is an exceedingly high remark in terms of what mankind can do. It is an incredible reference to the capabilities of ancient peoples. I understand rather well that at least our modern scientific viewpoint on things typically treats ancient peoples as much like idiotic brutes, walking around like some half-monkey, half-ape kind of thing, rather stupid and dumb. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ancient peoples upon this earth were intelligent. They were very capable. They were exceedingly able to bring about any number of things. In fact, I would invite you to notice even back in Genesis chapter 2, at the very scene of Adam and Eve, there were only two individuals on earth at that moment, and yet God made the following observation in verse 19 of that chapter. He told Adam to name the animals. Now consider for a moment how many animals there would have been. Adam named them. He remembered what he called them, and he passed that name down to his descendants. And so when he called a giraffe, 
or a wolf or some other kind of an animal. You and I know well then the intelligence that went with that activity and the nature of not only doing that but remembering it so that you could pass that information onward. And yet as we arrive at chapter 6, remember Noah and his descendants, his particular peoples, they constructed the largest seagoing vessel the world had ever known up until about the middle of the 19th century, the ark of Noah's day. And yet, we can now come to chapter 11. The people were constructing a tower. Think about the building of a skyscraper. You know, modern engineering is now quite capable of building exceedingly tall buildings. We have cranes and we have the other means to make that possible. The ancient peoples, of course, didn't have easy access to mechanical things like that. And yet, they nonetheless could build at a high tower. They had learned how to construct cities. Ancient peoples were very bright and very capable. Sometimes those in history will make note of the so-called seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, as you and I have at least thought about them and read about them, aren't you and I still impressed that some of them are still standing upon this planet so many millennia after they were constructed. What man today can put together a structure that'll still be standing 4,000 years from now? Very few. And yet, the pyramids of Egypt that were constructed again well over 4,000 years ago, and they are still standing. Now, admittedly, some of those other seven wonders of the ancient world are not still standing, but the only thing that has done away with them in most cases are earthquakes. And so, as you give thought to, say, the great statue in Greece, well, an earthquake took care of it. Or the lighthouse at Alexandria, an earthquake did it in. And on so many other occasions, that's exactly what ruined it. But those pyramids are just one example of the ingenuity, the cleverness, the capacity, the craftiness, and the engineering wherewithal of ancient peoples. As you turn to this particular listing, notice... A tower and a city were under discussion. The people had made determination, we will not be scattered. We are going to remain in this place for we like it and we're going to make a name for ourselves here. And we're going to make a tower that will reach well into the heavens. No doubt God said they could have done it. Verse 6 testifies it was God's determination they would have been able to do it. Doesn't that tell us something about the capacity of ancient peoples? Not only the observation of those first verses, but notice that its location. In the plain of Shinar. Now, one of the things we learn about studying in the book of Genesis is that the cradle of civilization, as man would today speak of it, in fact, harmonizes beautifully with the Word of God. That phrase, cradle of civilization... All particular studies and research, be it in the nature of human populations, the nature of languages, or even otherwise, point to the fact of the beginning of the human family in the part of the world we would recognize as Babylon. Shinar, if you please. Now that takes us back to the location of the Garden of Eden. We can, in fact, appreciate from Genesis chapter 2 because of the rivers mentioned there. We know roughly where the Garden of Eden was, and it was in the same location. It pointed us back to this same uh, consideration in place. 
But now you notice that the scene in chapter 11, one more time, takes us back to that part of the world as the beginning point. It's at this point, though, you might be quick to say, look at how different that part of the world is today. You know, that was the cradle of civilization and as such the beginning point. And yet, look at how barren it often looks today. If you see pictures of modern-day Iraq or Iran, you see a dusty, barren, dust bowl-looking place that looks to be so unpleasant and so uninteresting and so undesirable. Could I suggest to you that in much of the development through the course of biblical history, God cursed those particular arenas and those areas in such a way that's not what it was. Though it once was the Garden of Eden, it sure isn't now. Later on in the Old Testament, in the days of Ezekiel, for example, we have other references to the nature of that curse and the characteristics that, that, that in fact went with it. But I would say, why don't we look at one other set of lessons? We've looked at the position. We've looked at the nature of that tower. But look one more time at verse number 4. Let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name. You and I know well that much of that part of the world, when they build towers like this one, sometimes it's called a ziggurat, other times an obelisk or something like that. And we know that the primary function at least had a connection to religion. In other words, it was a place to centralize a worship of a being other than God. I strongly suspect, based on what we just read, that that was a part of what was going to take place here as well. The people were going to turn their attention, you see, to the worshiping of something they had built to the worship of something they had constructed. And in so doing, they, of course, would become idolaters. Even in that patriarchal era, we know well that idolatry had come and would come to be a rather oft-occurring thing. And yet God here stamped out this initial moment by confounding their language. You may notice one more thing about verse 4. Let us make us a name lest we be scattered the strength that would come with number. To say the very least, verse number 5 is a thunderous matter. God came down. It is not to say that God wasn't aware formerly of what they were doing. It is not at all to say that He was completely ignorant, if He please, of the choices they had made. But rather what it says is, He came down to see, meaning that He intervened in this matter. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15, 3. The God of heaven had given orders, commandments. He had stated His will relative to what the human population were to do, and they were choosing to do something separate. On the one hand, staying located, as opposed to distributing throughout the earth. Secondly, it would appear again to worship something they had constructed rather than the worship of God. You may notice in that light, verse 6 then said, the people is one. Don't you find it intriguing that as God chose to confound their language, at this point it would be easy to ask, what was this initial language that everybody spoke before God confounded it? 
modern-day language research, modern-day language study seemingly points to an ancient ancestor of what would be modern Arabic in some form. In other words, it seems like many languages can ultimately be attached to or at least be seen in some remnant discussion of what was initially Arabic. Now, if that be so, you and I realize that when God confounded the languages, verse number 7 now says that they may not understand one another. The modern planet Earth has a lot of different languages spoken. We understand that. If you've ever heard certain languages such as Japanese or Cambodian or Chinese or some one of them, they certainly are so dramatically different than, let's say, the European languages of French or Spanish and certainly different than English. And yet all of it reminds us that there still are the African languages and the South American languages. Here we find that the place for which we appreciate the origination of this difference in language takes us back to Genesis 11. Human languages didn't just develop by evolving upon the earth. It's not that it was just a natural presentation, and much research has in fact confirmed that. It all began with one rather abrupt event, and we just read about it in Genesis 11. The way that languages came about then was a rather miraculous and sudden event because of what God brought about. Isn't it amazing then to see that even something as simple as the differences in languages, the Bible has informed us of how it originated. At that point, verse number 9 then says this, Therefore is the name of it called Babel. I would suggest there are some interesting lessons in that, of course, for you and me today. When you and I have the intent to build something, for instance, a program in a church, are we building or are we babbling? If we choose, you see, to thwart the plan of God, to put in our name and our desires and our wishes, then we're no better off, at least in principle, than the people who attempted to construct this tower known as Babel. You see, God wasn't pleased with their effort, and thus He intervened in such a way to tear it, to, to, to tear it asunder. When you and I strive to build for the things of God, we would desire to build wholeheartedly and in conviction with His will, not as opposed to it. Therefore, verse number 9 closes by saying, From thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. It had been His intent that the human family replenish and fill the earth, Genesis 1.28. And you'll notice God brought that reality about. Now one set of final things perhaps in the lesson tonight will have drawn to its conclusion. We've looked, you see, about Genesis 11, reflected upon the Tower of Babel and the remarkable set of events that happened the aftermath that would follow, and the languages that came from it, and the considerations about the various places that people would choose to dwell. You can imagine in the centuries that followed how that those who could speak the same language and thus understand one another, they of course dwelled in the vicinity and near one another primarily, and they would begin to settle in certain locations. And thus, as that happened over and over, there became regions or places upon earth wherein individuals speak in that common language 
work together, labor together, and dwell together. Today, as you and I speak English, we know that the consideration of that particular language has come to have a dramatic place worldwide. A lot of peoples that actually are native to other languages learn to speak English because that is called the universal language at this point. But you notice it is still true in the New Testament. God had to intervene in yet other ways to help make sure the gospel could be set forth. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost that the apostles themselves were able to speak in languages they had never learned? Because those present for that Pentecost celebration, they themselves were speaking different languages because they had come from different areas. God equipped His people with the capability of speaking in languages they had not studied. Now later on, in 1 Corinthians 12, that was one of the particular miraculous gifts, the gift of tongues. So you'll notice that God confounded the language here, but yet in the New Testament He worked to overcome that in those especially miraculous ways. Doesn't that remind us of what God can do? that when things are His will, He will bring those matters about. And sometimes it is not the way that humanity would have expected, perhaps like here in the events of the Tower of Babel. But otherwise, how blessed we are to have amongst the proceedings of the Bible the record of something like this, and modern research is in harmony with it. Modern language studies, modern language considerations, in fact, point right back to the correctness and the expectation of a chapter like Genesis 11. I hope that our faith has been fortified as we reflect upon the origin of languages, the events at Babel, and the considerations that have been brought before us that centuries and centuries later, the differences in language have been maintained, in part because of the events at the Tower of Babel. It might be this evening in this assembly that there would be someone that would have a desire to respond in a positive way to the Lord's invitation. It might be that someone here who, once a faithful Christian, has allowed yourself to become a bit focused on other things, and so the will of God does not take center stage in your life. Notice that at the Tower of Babel, when the will of God did not take center stage, they began to act in ways that was displeasing to God, and God intervened. You and I know for sure that if we begin to act in ways that are again displeasing to Him, we shall find it very regretful on the day of judgment. Tonight then, if it would be the need of your life, maybe upon recognition of what Jesus did at Calvary, the circumstances surrounding the truth connected to the church, if we could be of assistance to you tonight by acknowledging, for instance, the need to repent and to confess sins, we'd be happy to pray upon behalf of those matters. If there would be anyone in the audience for whom that would be the case, we certainly would use this as an opportune time to extend the Lord's invitation.